Well, it's good to uh, be back with you. Um, see, Ginger and her mother and I were down in Perdido Keys while you were going through the great uh, storm. And uh, we had a little bit of strong wind for a couple of days, and that's it. Now, they've already taken off again uh, down to Penny Farms, Florida, which, uh, which is where her mother had been living before they came. So I'm, I'm on my own here. Well, back in the, uh, the spring of 1527, the great reformer Martin Luther, he had to stop preaching in the middle of his sermon. He was experiencing a, a dizzy spell. And as the, uh, the summer came, his health declined so much, it appeared that he, that he would die. He was coming to his last days. And, you know, Luther was already prone to depression anyhow. And this sunk him all the more into despondency. It had been ten years since he had nailed the 95 Theses on that on the door of the Wittenberg Church. And these are ten years filled now with relentless attacks against him. Uh, he had not expected, he had expected to die as a martyr. But somehow he, he's continued on. There was swirling controversy always that's, that's going to accompany a great new theological movement such as the Reformation. And then there was something else. There was the, the plague that had been tormenting Europe really for more than a century. It had come to Wittenberg. Luther and others were ordered to leave the city. He disobeyed. He stayed opened up his home to take in those who were sick, and he tended them. His wife also, by the way, was sick, and he had to see a number of his loved ones die. Well, it was likely sometime during this period, sometime in 1527, that he penned the words to a mighty fortress is our God. And the hymn quickly became popular, so much so that it was regarded as the battle hymn of the Reformation. The basis of that hymn is the psalm we're going to be looking at this morning, Psalm 46. Luther loved the psalms, and he turned to them again and again for solace and strength. And there's no psalm that provided such encouragement as the one that we're about to look at now. So I encourage you, you can open up your Bibles to Psalm 46, If you want to use the text that I'm preaching, the translation I'm preaching from, that's the English Standard, you'll see that in the insert that's in your bulletin. Now, most commentators believe that Psalm 46 was written in response to a great deliverance that that God had done for Jerusalem. And they think, they think they can probably narrow it down to the deliverance you might remember from the Assyrian army of Sennacherib. Hezekiah was king. The, the army had surrounded the city. There's no hope. There seemed to be no hope. King Hezekiah prays to God, and God answers his prayer. And that evening he strikes down, we're told, 185,000 soldiers. And they then left. It's probably some kind of plague by which he had done that with. And so this psalm celebrates perhaps this very victory or something like that. 
And it breaks into three stanzas. And each stanza, it's easy to tell how to break them out. Each one ends with the word Selah or Selah. And it's probably a musical term, meaning, probably meaning to pause. So let's do that. If we pause and reflect on each stanza, it will, we'll be able to detect the flow of the psalmist's thinking. And the first stanza presents the psalm's theme. And this is the theme of the psalm. God is our protector. Therefore, we need not be fearful. That's it. So it starts off in verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. God, the the Hebrew word is Elohim. It is the same word used for, for God, spoken of in Genesis 1. There he's the divine creator. That God is our refuge, our shelter from the storm. He will protect us from the fierce winds that blow. He will protect us from the encroaching floods. He will keep us safe. He will keep us warm and fed. He is our comfort. You know, just as refugees from the storms, they find not only physical shelter to to protect them from the storm out there, but in that shelter, you know, there are care workers who who tend to their needs, perhaps even provide them the, the hugs that they need so God tends to all of our needs. God is our strength. He's our defender against the foe. No one will break down his wall. No flood will will seep through to to touch us. He will not only keep us from harm, he will fight for us. He will fight against and dispel whoever and whatever it is that may try to harm us. So God is a very present help in trouble. He's not late in giving his help. And he doesn't give partial help. He gives more than enough and precisely at the right time. So that kind of God, the verses 2 and 3 tells us. Therefore, with that kind of God for us, therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. Let's pause. Therefore, Knowing that God, the God of all creation, is the same God who is there for us when our troubles come. Let us stand. Let us stand strong. Let us not fear whatever the disaster might be, whoever the enemy might be. God is our mighty fortress. Again, that wraps up. That's the theme of the psalm. Now, in the next two stanzas, he's going to develop that theme. In the first stanza, he's going to develop it by depicting what it's like to be inside that fortress. Okay? That's what verses 4 and 7 is about. Let's, let's read them. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. 
The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Now that the first line of, of verse 4, as I read it anyhow, it just seems out of place. You've got this mighty fortress and, and you, you kind of wonder, I wonder, what, what's the point of the river? What's the point of that line of, of, of the, this concept of making the city glad? Because, you know, verses 1 through 3, we've got this fortress, mountains are going to fall down and so on, and, you, and you, the siege is about us. And then he gives us this kind of image of the residents kind of by the river having a nice afternoon, you know, have, enjoying their day. Well, the river's not actually a river, not, not as we would think of one. There's a spring outside the city. And for much of Jerusalem's history, the inhabitants actually had to go outside the city and get their water, and collect it and, and bring it back in. At some point, somewhere, we know because archaeologists have uncovered it, an aqueduct was built to bring the waters from the spring into the city. And then when King Hezekiah came on the throne, he actually built a tunnel. You, if you ever go to Jerusalem, you can, you can see that tunnel, uh, in which he then encompassed the spring uh, and the aqueduct so that it would be kept hidden from those who were besieging the city and bring in the water for the city. You see, the strategy of a siege of the city is part of it is to cut off the city's water supply. So in this case, the river is making Jerusalem glad by providing that very necessary water. Now let's talk about Jerusalem. She is called the city of God. She is the holy habitation of the Most High. Because in the city is God's temple, God's dwelling place. Now Israel, or actually we need to, right now, the, the kingdom is called Judah, is not like our pagan nations. The pagan nations each had their gods and they thought that their gods were restricted to their geographical location. But as Solomon, who had built this temple, when he came to the day of dedication, he says this of God. But will God indeed dwell with men on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Well, even so, even though they know that, you know, literally, no, God is not contained there in that house. Nevertheless, Temple is the house that God considered his home, his place. And the one place on earth, he says, where sacrifices can be made to him, nowhere else. And so if there is any one city, any one location where God could be said to dwell in its midst, it was the city of Jerusalem. And because God is in her midst, And the psalmist will say, the city cannot be moved. But there's another story for those outside the city. We see this in verse 6. Outside the city, the nations rage. The kingdoms totter. The earth melts. 
Everywhere outside the city is turmoil. It's like being on a a world-encompassing earthquake. Chaos is rampant. The NIV, the the Bible being used in, in the fuse here, has the term uproar for rage. Everything is in an uproar. That's the same word in, back in verse 3 about the waters. The waters roaring. That's what's taking place. So inside God's fortress, the city cannot be moved. Outside the fortress, everything is shaken. Now I want you to note why. We're told there again that God, what does he do? He utters his voice. So the city... Inside the fortress, he helps. And what's being indicated here is outside the world, he troubles. Now, the next stanza, we're going to explore this more. But meanwhile, the point of this stanza is that those who are in the city are to take comfort. Why? The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So the first stanza, just to repeat here, presented the theme of the, of the psalm. God's our protector. We are not to be fearful. Second stanza developed this theme. Here's what it's like to be inside God's fortress. And the third, the last stanza, is going to depict more fully what it's like being outside the fortress. Now, it was already denoted back there in verse 6, in verse six that we had the, the images of what? Raging, tottering, melting. And there was this phrase that God utters his voice. And what's being indicated here is that what's going on outside the fortress is somehow connected to God. So God may be in his holy city with his people. But he's not holed up while his enemies attack. He's not there in a safe room keeping there and and trying to just with the people keep everybody calm. No, he's doing something. And this is what the next verses tell us. Look in verse 8 and 9. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. God is out there. He's in the midst of the battles and he is vanquishing his foes. He is the the desolations on the earth are from the battles. God makes the war cease. By conquering. He is not a peace negotiator. He breaks the bow. He shatters the spear. He burns the chariots. He utterly destroys the opposing forces. Now the stanza is going to end with the same refrain as of of the second stanza. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And so again, God's people are to be assured of his protection. But I want you to look with me now, really, back at verse 10. This is where God is speaking to all the nations outside of his fortress. And that's where the psalm gets to the heart 
of what everything is really about, both the protection and the warfare. It is all about God's glory. Verse 10, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And we know that first line, don't we? As, as Christians, we probably have often quoted it and reminded ourselves about it whenever we've gotten upset and disturbed and so on. And we, we, we might say it to ourselves, we've said it to others, be still, be still, know, know that the Lord is God and, and, and listen to him. But the actual context that it comes out of is it's spoken It's not spoken to believers. It's spoken to the nations, to those who have not surrendered to the authority of God. Indeed, who keep fighting against him. The word to them is be still. Stop your ceaseless fighting against me. Lay down your arms. Surrender. The New American Standard Version translates the word, probably more accurately here, is cease striving. Cease your rebellious striving against your Creator and acknowledge Him as your rightful King. Give God the glory that belongs to Him, for God will not cease uttering His voice and troubling you until you do. So let's Recap it, what we've just gone through. Jerusalem has withstood a siege by a powerful army. This was accomplished by, by God, the Lord of hosts, that is the Lord of a great army. And that God acted as her fortress out of his mercy, but also, and again, this is what's being made clear in verse 10, out of his determination to be exalted by everyone. That's Psalm 46. You can see, can't you, how this psalm would have been an encouragement to Martin Luther. I mean, he certainly felt besieged. And no doubt, much of his physical illness is just a result of the anxiety that he was under. And his fellow reformers felt the same way. They had joined, they had started and joined a theological movement that made the world about them move and quake and roar. Would this movement survive? Would they survive? And by the way, there was another movement taking over portions of of at least Eastern Europe and threatening to move into Western Europe. The Turks, as they were called then, that was the Ottoman Empire, an Islamic kingdom that had pushed as far as Venice, would they take over the rest of Europe? And so a massive change is taking place in Europe. There is an Islamic threat coming from the outside. And then for Luther, personal attacks are happening almost daily. And now there's this this chronic illness bringing him, he thought, to death. And Luther, again, You have to understand, he already had an emotional temperament. So now he is driven to despair. Here's how he describes his state of mind. 
I spent more than a week in death and hell. My entire body was in pain, and I still trembled. And note this line, completely abandoned by Christ. I labored under the vacillations and storms of desperation and blasphemy against God. That's really low, isn't it? It's around this time that he pins a mighty fortress. We don't know if it was before, during, or or soon afterwards, but somehow the truth of this psalm took root in his soul when he desperately needed it. And so he's able to write a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, our shelter he amid the flood of mortal Eels prevailing. See, what Luther did then is he looked at the flood. To him, certainly it was a flood of mortal ills that were prevailing in his day and in his personal life. And as the theologian that he was, he, he determines, he understands the enemy, the real enemy. It is Satan. Satan is the ancient foe ever seeking to work God's people woe. He seeks to destroy the kingdom of Christ, to undo us. He hates God. And he hates all who would follow God. And so he stirs up the kingdoms of this world to to wage war against the church. It may be literal warfare, as it has been over the centuries. Or as it may be even now where churches in other parts of the world, when they gather together, they don't know if they're going to be attacked as they leave or if their church is going to be burned down when there's real persecution. It may be the warfare that we are seeing now in our own country of public pressure and ridicule for our beliefs. And then Satan works within the church. He sows seeds of division and enmity within the church. And he works in each of us. He he plants doubts, anxiousness, even despair in the minds of believers. How can we defeat such a foe? Well, Luther found it here in this psalm, in Psalm 46. If you... Go back over, you'll notice every verse but two refer to God. Either gives the name of God or uses a pronoun for God. And then those two verses are verses two and three, and they're simply giving that response to who God is and what it means for us. God is our fortress. That's the point. We are not our own fortress. Nor do we build a fortress about us. The church in which we reside is impregnable. Not not these walls, but the church, the true invisible church of Christ is impregnable because the church is the holy place in which God resides. He is here. And so as Luther writes, so the right man is on our side. He is our champion. His name. Do you ask what his name is? It is Lord Sabaoth. That's the name that's given there in verses 7 and 11. 
where it says, in my translation, the Lord of hosts. Or if you have the NIV, it's the, uh, the Lord Almighty. The Hebrew there is Yahweh, Lord, Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, of an army, of many. He is our God. And the God of Jacob, meaning the God of the church, the God of that nation, the God of our church, is a Lord of hosts, almighty. And as Luther had the insight to discern, this Lord of hosts is none other than Christ Jesus. And so, just as in Psalm 46, where it is God who does all of the battling, so in Luther's hymn, it is Christ Jesus, Lord Sabbath, who must fight and win the battle. You know, the people of Jerusalem were not to fear whatever tempest may come. Why? Because they trust the Lord God, the Lord of hosts, to be their fortress and to be their deliverer. And so in the same manner, the church of Jesus Christ, the people who dwell within that church, we need not fear the present tempest. Whatever you read in the papers, whatever you hear on TV, in the radio, whatever you go on the internet, whatever storms may come, whatever take place, we need not fear the present tempest. Why? Because we can trust the man of God's own choosing. Fight the battle against the great enemy behind the tempest. We can trust him to be our fortress. Remember what Christ is called in John 1, verse 1? He's called the Word. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. Well, Luther points out again in his hymn, that Word is what? It is above all earthly powers. And that word shall fail. It shall defeat the prince of darkness. However grim he may be, however great may be his craft and power, however cruel may be his hate, the victory belongs to Jesus Christ. And so as the psalmist would, would say to us, in Psalm 46, so Luther is saying in his hymn, do not fear Remember who your fortress is. Remember who your Savior is. He will win the battle. And he does not need our strength or our wisdom. Even so, there is something we can do. I did not complete that quote from Luther about the despair he had fallen into. Recall again, it was so terrible that he felt abandoned by his Savior. That he says he was on the verge of blasphemy. So, so what happened? Did he turn to Psalm 46? Well, he may have. But it's not what he did that he points to. It's actually what he points to that his friends did. He completes that quote with this sentence. But through the prayers of the saints, thinking of his friends, God began to have mercy on me. And pulled by soul from the infernal below. What can we do? Well, we can pray. We can pray for ourselves. We can pray for our friends and our loved ones. We can pray for the church. 
Why, we can even pray for those whom the enemy stirs up to attack us. Whoever you see as your attackers, might be the media, might be the cultural disturbers, it might be the Islamic terrorists, it might be the, the atheist haters. Look, know this. The true enemy, it's not the enemy, the true enemy that is behind it all is Satan. And he works to create turmoil in and around your life because he hates you. And he hates you because he hates God. But understand this, your enemy is not your neighbor. Pray for him, for her, for them whoever they may be, pray that they will be still, that they will lay down their arms and cease striving against God. Pray that they will know the true God and with you will exalt the true God. And then a final word to whoever whoever might be in that camp of striving against God. You know the turmoil of your own life. You know the anger against God. Perhaps, you know, perhaps it's from past experience. Perhaps growing up in the church and you, you received abuse in the church or you saw hypocrisy or perhaps you just look around and you see all this evil and justice happening about you and, you and you ask, well, how can a God let such desolations take place, much less causes? Why doesn't he bring peace Well, the Lord of hosts has brought peace more than you know. And again and again and again, millions of foes have ceased their striving and they have yielded to God. And they have found not a judge uh, bearing down upon them and bringing doom, but they have found a Savior bringing mercy. That was the case of Martin Luther. You know, Luther had two conversions, really, so to speak of. The first one we all often hear about, he's, he's getting ready, he's heading off to law school. He's out of a car, he's riding on horseback, he's caught in a thunderstorm, lightning is all about him, he falls to the ground, fearful that he is about to be struck by lightning, and he vows to become a monk if God saves him. Well, God saves him, he, he doesn't die, and he keeps his word, and he goes into a monastery, and he becomes a good monk. God had uttered his voice in that lightning storm, and Luther became still, and he surrendered to God. Or so it seemed. Luther may have laid down his arms, but he did so as one as though he were a captive slave. He regarded God because he knew who God was. And he knew God as a, was a righteous God. He regarded him as a harsh taskmaster. Here's what he has to say. And this is him as a monk now. I did not love. Yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. Secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God and said, as if indeed it is not enough 
that miserable sinners eternally lost their original sin are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Decalogue without having God add pain to pain by the gospel and also by the gospel threatening us with his righteousness and wrath. Thus, I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Well, is that your understanding of the gospel? The gospel is saying, well, you're bad and you must get your life right before God will accept you. And and getting your life right, by the way, means giving up whatever is good and, and desirable. And by the way, you will never be sure that you're doing enough, being good enough. Well, that's your understanding of the gospel. Then no wonder you'd be like Luther, inwardly raging and rebelling at the idea of surrendering to God. But the gospel message is that Luther, so well discovered, is be still. Give up on insisting your own way of making yourself your own God, which you know is not working out. Give up trying to prove yourself, proving that you are good enough to to earn your way to be accepted. Give up the anger. Give up the rebelling, the the turmoil, and rest. Rest in God, your Savior. And then exalt in God, your Savior. His desire is not to make you his slave, but his child. And he requires nothing of you but your faith in him. Your trust in him to be your fortress, your only fortress. And if you do so, Well, then, like the inhabitants of Jerusalem, you will be made glad by that eternal, refreshing water that gives eternal life. Let's pray. We thank you, our God. You are our mighty fortress. We thank you that you are not merely just this great fortress about us. You are our loving, merciful Father. Because Jesus Christ has become our brother. We thank you for the victory that he won for us upon the cross, ever complete, ever final. We thank you that there is no longer any war, any battle between us and you. We have been reconciled by Jesus Christ. And Father, if there is anyone here who is yet to know that reconciliation, that peace, I may you break through their defenses, their fortresses, that they may know the peace that is in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.